All right, we're in Job 38. Job 38 tonight. The Lord answers Job if you are uh, new to the book of Job, just right before the Psalms. Job 38. The Lord answers Job from the whirlwind. This is a really powerful section of scripture. We're going to take a chunk of it tonight. Um, we'll see how far we get, but it is uh, incredibly powerful because it is the voice of God directly speaking to man. And where in the scriptures we do have the voice of prophets and we do have uh, prophecy given and messages given, and we have divine scripture given through the prophets and apostles, tonight we are going to hear directly from God. And for those who do the math, they say God asked Job 77 questions. 77 questions. And those questions are questions asked rhetorically to answer Job's questions. So it's kind of an interesting thing to think about, and this is going to be one that you want to just maybe try to look a little bit deeper as you think about the questions, because in the questions, there are answers. So let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for this section of the Bible. It is really a majestic section. It's pretty rare when God is recorded as speaking directly to man uh, in this fashion. And we don't know the mechanics of it, but we do know that the Lord, you, Lord, answered Job in the whirlwind, through the whirlwind. And you spoke directly to him, and you spoke profound truth, uh, really to put him in his place, but in another sense, to get him thinking outside of himself. And we need that help desperately, Lord. So we pray tonight that you'd help us to take our eyes off of our problems just at least for a few moments, put them on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith. You're going to bring us all the way home. And I pray tonight, whatever the issues in this room may represent, those who may hear or watch this later, you'd minister to those needs as you would will. And you just uh, give us soft hearts to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. All right. Well, if you're like me, I'm kind of tired of hearing all the other voices, whether they're political voices or otherwise. Uh, there's a lot of talking going on, a lot of people offering answers. Uh, a lot of the answers seem to be repackaged answers, same old, same old kind of stuff. But there's a deep longing, I think, in every human being's heart to not only see God, but to hear from God. And Revelation 21 and 22 says we're going to see God, which is an amazing reality. But this particular section is about hearing from God, and it's been the longing of Job's heart. Let me just show you a few places. Uh, turn back for a second to Job 9. We'll move rapidly, but I just want to set the table by showing you a few of Job's heart cries as it leads up to jo uh, chapter 38. Job 9.16 says... Job 9.16, if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For notice, he bruises me, 9.17, with a tempest, multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get a breath, to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? All the way to Job 23, something similar here as Job longs to hear from God or have an audience with God. Job 23, 3 says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, 23, 3, that I might come to his seat, 
I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. 23.6 Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. And then to 31.35 Job 31.35 Job cries, Oh, that I had one to hear me, 3135. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare it to him, declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Well, wonder of wonders, Job is going to get to hear from God now. The thing that he longed for, there is a deep longing to hear from God, quoting one writer, in the heart to see God, and there is also a longing to hear his voice. Job has been longing for this. It is what he desired most passionately and feared most deeply. <laughs> so, yes, he wanted to hear from God, but if you just look at the image behind me for a second, this is a representation of what's called theophany or uh, appearances of the Lord are often surrounded by the tempest, by fire, by storm, by lightning. And so to get the image of a whirlwind, you can kind of look at this and get an idea of what this represents. It is, it is a powerful image. It seems in many ways to be untamed uh, we know that there's uh, hurricanes and tornadoes that have passed through areas and, and, you know, done a good amount of damage. And Job wants to hear from God, and he's been hearing from all these other voices, including Elihu and others, and he's been speaking on behalf of God, but now Job is going to hear from God directly. And God is going to answer him out of the whirlwind. Verse 1, the Lord, then the Lord, this is Job 38, 1, See that word Lord there, that's uh, the capitals, L-O-R-D, is whenever you see it that way, it's always Yahweh, or the four letters. So the four letters are Y-H-W-H, they're called the Tetragrammatron, and so uh, whenever you see Lord capitalized like this, or whatever you call the caps there, what are they called there? Lowercase caps, or whatever they're called, anyway, um, that is Yahweh, and so the closest we have to it, because we don't have the vowels, is the consonants, and we have Y-H-W-H. So some say it's Yahweh, Yahweh, but this is the name of God. It's the Lord. Notice he answered Job out of the whirlwind. So God appears in what's called theophany. You've heard uh, maybe that term before, or Christophany, the appearing of the Lord. And here, sometimes with thunder, Psalm 77, eight, uh, I think it's verses 8 through 10. Sometimes with dark clouds, Psalm 18, 10 through 13. Sometimes divine visitation is with an earthquake, Judges 5, 4 and Psalm 18, 8. Sometimes with fire, like Psalm 50, verse 3. One writer says, The panorama of natural phenomena witnesses that Yahweh, the holy God, is actually present. The clouds protect the audience from being completely consumed by his holiness. 
And so when God appears and you have these natural phenomenon that appear with him like the clouds and so forth, that is to depict his holiness, but it is also to protect the audience. (laughs) If we saw God in his full radiance and holiness, we would be done. We would be dust. And so here he comes from the storm. When Jesus sent the disciples into the storm, remember, he went up on the mountain to pray, and they were rowing against the wind, and it was, what, the fourth watch of the night, and Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He was walking on the storm, if you will, and the sea wasn't calm, not this placid scene like we see sometimes depicted. No, the winds were raging. It was one of those storms on the Sea of Galilee. Don't happen all the time, but when they hit, man, it's trouble. And these are seasoned fishermen, and they think they're going to die. And Jesus comes walking on the water, and they go, Wah! <laughs> It's a ghost! It's, it's the Grim Reaper! It's the Death Angel! And Jesus says, to paraphrase, calm down, boys, it's me. And remember, Peter wanted to go out to him. Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. Come. But when Peter, you know, and he did something radical, right? He was walking on the sea. But when Peter saw the wind and the waves, he started to freak out and he started to drown. Lord, save me. And the Lord reached down. He pulled him up. And then he said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Isn't that interesting? The Lord does put uh, a great amount of emphasis often in the New Testament on faith. Interestingly enough, that scene is a storm. Jesus sent his disciples into the storm. He knew what was going to happen. He's up on the mountain praying for them, and he doesn't come to them until the fourth watch of the night, which means several hours have passed and they've been struggling and and you know trying to go against the wind and oftentimes and this is a concept that we probably heard before god will send us into storms why to teach us some things so this image is is really kind of a fascinating image in thinking about the lord and what he does in our lives There's going to be two speeches to give you an outline coming up. Two speeches from the Lord. Um, They're going to be followed by short responses from Job. Job does not have a whole lot to say after this. But the speeches blend multiple genres. Theophany, hymn of praise, dispute, interrogation of a defendant, myths of the divine battle with primordial monsters. The essential nature of these speeches is a hymn of praise says one writer. So many different genres. And what you're going to see is often some poetic language. So what we're going to get some pictures of is God describing phenomenon, like natural phenomenon and that kind of thing. But it's going to be in some poetic language. It's not exactly how it all works mechanically, but it does the job. And, and God from the whirlwind addressing Job says, verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins. If you have an ESV, it says dress for action. If you have an NIV, it says brace yourself like a man. The word man means be a valiant man or it's time to be a warrior, Job. And I will question you and you instruct me. Now what's interesting about this is that we've often heard about how God doesn't really answer Job 
so to speak. He just challenges him, but he does invite Job to instruct him. And after all, that's what Job's been kind of looking for, right? You know, there's a story about a man who's sitting at a dinner party somewhere, and he says, you know, essentially, I, I think I could run the universe better than God. Ever said that uh, before or thought it before? Hopefully not, right? I think I could be, do a better job, you know. I think I can run the universe better than God. I have some pretty clever ideas, some, you know, some new strategies to look at things, you know. But obviously that's a silly notion. And so girding up one's loins in the ancient world, they wore robes, even men wore robes. And so they would tuck their robe into their belt for freedom of movement. And so essentially when you break down the Hebrew here, Uh, writers will say that what God is saying to Job is, let's get ready to rumble! (laughs) It's kind of a wrestler's image or get ready to box. You want want an audience with me? Okay, here we go. Ding, ding, ding. And sometimes when when we get what we wanted so desperately, we don't realize what we've been asking for. Because now we get to deal with the God of the universe. And he says, Job, you better buckle up because we're going to tussle. And I've got some questions for you since everybody's been asking questions. Well, I've got some questions for you, and then you can answer my questions. Now, if you were here the night that Greg Kokel came, he shared with us the book Tactics, an updated version of the book Tactics. And it's the idea of using questions and conversation as a spiritual bridge to get to truth. And I was thinking about this after Greg was here that night and thinking about, you know, Jesus did this very thing in using questions. He did it with the religious leaders. He said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? And remember, they huddled up in a little huddle. All right, what are we going to say? Ready, break. We don't know. Right? Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, The Christ... Whose son is he? Right? He asks another question. They really don't know the answer to the question. And so God has questions of his own. Not that he needs the answers. But it is a form of instruction. In fact, you're going to find the questions are rhetorical and filled with sarcasm or irony from the Lord. Yes, the Lord apparently can be sarcastic. Because when you're God, you're in a category (laughs) all your own, right? So he's going to ask some questions that seem to be somewhat uh, filled with irony or sarcasm, but there's a reason for it. And here's, you know, a lot of people have questions for God. If you were to think about maybe the last uh, month or so, how many questions do you think people have asked about God or prayed to God? I mean, I have my questions. I'm sure you do as well. There's a website called Got Questions. Ever been to that website? pretty good website. I think it's uh, .org, and uh, it will give you a lot of answers to, and it's a pretty solid website about questions that we have. We have lots of questions, questions about the problem of evil, etc. The story is recounted uh, Benjamin Jowett. He was the master of Balliol College in Oxford. Apparently someone asked him at dinner, Dr. Jowett, we would like to know what your opinion of God is, to which he is said to have replied, I should think it a great impertinence were I to express my opinion about God. 
the only constant anxiety of my life is to know what God's opinion of me <laughs> is. I can tell you my opinion about God, but what I really want to know about, what makes me anxious, says this man, is what does God think about me? <laughs> you ever flip that around in a conversation around the coffee maker? What are your thoughts on God? <laughs> well, you may have some thoughts, but I'm really more interested in what God has to say. Amen? And we have a lot of people who get a little bit spiritual and they think maybe they become somewhat of an expert, but we need to hear what God has to say. And God is going to go right to creation and he's going to really, as he questions Job, and as we open our hearts to this section, he's going to emphasize the bigness of God. The bigness of God, the holiness of God, the grandeur of God, is a big part of our healing. I'm going to say that one more time. The bigness of God, the holiness of God, the grandeur of God, is going to be a big part of your healing. See, if you stay stuck in your problems and your little circle and your neighborhood and you don't get your eyes off of that, you're going to be so consumed with your problems that your house is going to metaphorically just tumble in on you. But when you can get your eyes off of yourself and off of your problems and onto the bigness of God, there was a book written, Your God is Too Small. And this is what God is doing for Job. He's going to go into creation his created order. This is question one, verse four. And he starts, where were you <laughs> when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This repetition of the idea of understanding. Job, can you claim, you're going to see this idea in different ways of understanding. Can you claim to know the inner structure of the created, created order? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth. And notice the invitation. Tell me if you have understanding. Now, Job was nowhere to be found, number one. Number two, would you notice it, Bible students? God does claim to be the creator of the earth. So I know we have books upon books that are written about where the world came from and was it this process or that process? Was it a big bang? Was the universe always here? Well, God says, I made it. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. So if a human being who lives on the planet 60, 80, 100 years and writes a couple of books and does some investigations on some islands, uh, measuring the length of beaks of particular birdies, and then writes a book, authoritatively speaking. By the way, the man I understand was in seminary prior to this venture, Darwin. So, so you look at that and you say, okay, wow, and people were enamored with it. They're still enamored with it. Evolution, evolution of the species. Right? Sounds scientific until you really break it down. Right? No evidence whatsoever in the fossil record for it. Everything around us screaming for intelligence and design. And we're standing in a building. None of us believe that the building just flopped into place over millions of years. The light just went... <laughs> 
and the walls, they were just attracted to one another. Oh, you look like somebody I could hang out with for the next 30 years. Let's mold together, right? The carpet, after arguments about the color, <laughs> rolled out, right? You, you get the meaning, right? See, God says, no, I laid the foundation of the earth. And by the way, Isaiah 44, 24, just write it down for your notes, says he did it all alone. All alone. Now, what does that mean? Well, John 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and by Him, and without Him, Jesus, the Word, not one thing would come into being that has come into being. John 1, 1 through 4, in Him was life. That life is the light of men. Amen? Jesus Christ is the Creator of the universe. In fact, Colossians 1 calls him the creator and says he holds all things together by the word of his power. Isn't it amazing that the creator died on the cross for you? It's who we're dealing with. This is his love for us. Proverbs 8 says that wisdom was with him. Wisdom is personified in a female, feminine sense. But wisdom is God's know-how. See, God designed the universe. He designed the earth. He designed, I just did a quick internet search. They are now saying there's 8.7 million forms of plants and animals that have been documented on the earth. Let me say that one more time. 8.7 million forms of plants and animals. And things under the sea that are pretty amazing. Have you ever watched those under the, sea, under the sea programs and the different colors and the things that come swimming by and you're like, whoa. And we're going to get into some uh, creations of God in these chapters where there are scholars that believe these are, these are potentially water dinosaurs or huge creatures that God made. Just think of the power that God has to create something like a whale, etc. See, Job was nowhere to be found. He doesn't have the understanding. He wasn't there, but God was there. And God set, verse 5, you could, meet, you could translate this, he traced or drafted or surveyed its, the earth's measurements. Since you know, who stretched, who stretched, New Living Translation, the survey line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstones? Four more questions in verses 5 and 6. And you can see the Lord is talking about the earth in verse 4. He talks about, he uh, here is illustrated as a architect, as the creator, the one who drew the blueprints for the earth, and the one who created the earth and everything in it. That is our God. Creator, sustainer, designer. In Acts 3, verse 15, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, you killed the author of life. The word for author there in Greek is archegos. And there's a word in Revelation 3, 14, when it talks about that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. 
He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Aleph Tav in Hebrew. When it says he's the beginning of the creation of God, Jehovah's Witnesses say, ah, see, that means he had a beginning. That's not what it means. The word beginning is arche, A-R-C-H-E, arche. It's where we get the word architect. And so the way to render Revelation 3.14 is that Jesus is not a created being. He's the beginner of the universe. He was there in the beginning. You could say it this way. Before the beginning began (laughs) was the word. Because in the beginning, God did what? He created, Genesis 1.1, the heavens and the earth. God is the master architect, the master chemist the master architect who set the footings of the earth and laid the cornerstone of the earth. In Israel, they believe that there is the foundation stone there in Jerusalem where God started everything. That's uh, rabbinic conjecture. That's the, I think the rabbis say, you know, there's a foundation stone where it all started there in Israel. Don't know that for sure. Kind of an interesting thing to ponder. But whenever a foundation stone was laid, there was usually some sort of processional and uh, time of praise. And it's interesting that verse 7 says this. When the morning stars sang together, so God's talking about, you know, laying the foundation of the earth, creating everything. When the morning stars sang together, seven, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, what does this mean? Well, it would appear that the angels got to witness creation. Now, the angels are still created beings. And God created the angels for his divine purposes. But the angels got to witness, and here specifically the creation of the earth, they got to see it, and then they got to celebrate it. Could you imagine if you had a front row seat with some popcorn for that one? Whoa! Wow! Oceans and trees and things like that. I mean, I don't know what all that looks like when the Lord's making a planet. But I would imagine there's some power. How many of you like a good power tool? You know, what was the old show with Tim Allen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, power tool. Look what this baby will do. Soup it up. Well, how about God making a planet? You want to talk about power? I mean, you'd have to buckle your seatbelt for that. And when the angels saw him creating the earth, you know what they started doing? They started singing. They started shouting for joy. This is better than watching a football game with your favorite team. They were shouting for joy. The morning stars sang together. That could be uh, the stars personified, perhaps. But the sons of God shouting for joy. In Genesis 6, uh, the majority of scholars believe sons of God there are the angels. And so Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. His loving kindness is everlasting. Down in verse 5. To him who made the heavens with skill, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, 
His loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night. Can you say it? His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, what is God doing for Job? Well, I mentioned to you that I think he's trying to get Job's focus in the right place, back to God. And that is one of my problems when I'm going through difficult stuff, when I have my questions, when I may be going through some personal suffering or maybe suffering because others are suffering. That's where I get stuck. And so God is inviting Job to start to contemplate his power. You say, why? Because Job feels out of control. And isn't that when we feel the most uneasy? Is who's steering <laughs> this car right now? There's a famous quote from a renowned evolutionist, um, and it was in regard to the 100th anniversary edition of Origin of the Species by Darwin. And he said that um, he's an atheist, and he said he, he has two very deep rooted concerns. He says, if I'm right and there is no God, then we're uh, living on a celestial ball hanging out in the middle of space and nobody's steering. See, that would concern me when I go to sleep at night as an atheist. <laughs> Ain't nobody steering. This all happened because of an explosion. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Let's think that one through. All right, second possibility the, this evolutionist said, honestly. He said, if there is a God, the second possibility frightens me because then there's a God and I don't know him. Both possibilities frighten me. Now, there's a solution to the atheist problem. What is that? Come to know the God who's steering. Now, he moves from the earth to the sea in verse 8. He says, who, he continues to ask Job questions, who enclosed the sea with doors? Remember, a lot of this is poetic. When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and I set bolt and doors. And I said, 11, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. God tells of the majesty of creation, pointing now to the power of the sea. The other night, I enjoy watching surfing, and I was watching uh, some big wave surfers. You ever seen that big wave surfing? I think some of those waves are up to 70 to 80 feet. And sometimes they, uh, they'll have a helicopter flying out there, and they'll get them out to where the waves are, and it's this incredible takeoff where you're <laughs> <laughs> and they're going down, and some of them don't make it. And when that wave crashes on them, they, uh, if you've watched this before, they wear these inflatable um, devices so that the, it will take, absorb the power of the wave if they go over the falls, so to speak, and crash. And they've had broken backs, they've had people drowned, and, you know, the thrill right, the thrill seekers, but when you make it and you get in the tomb and, woo, and you get out of it, whew, what a thrill. But if it crashes on you, it ain't good. If you've ever been in the washing machine in the ocean, you know, some, <laughs> sometimes we're out there and the waves are three feet and we're like, oh, this is huge. Whoa, man. <laughs> right? 
And then you see that big wave surfing and you're like, oh man, I'm a wimp. God says, I enclose the sea. In the ancient mind, the sea was sometimes seen as a hostile god with a small g, sometimes seen as a sea monster, uh, sometimes associated with Leviathan, as we'll talk about. But here, in a strange image, God pictures the sea as a baby. Would you look? Verse 8. Enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth. It went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. I swaddled the sea. <laughs> I don't know if that means that God read it a bedtime story before he unleashed the sea. But the picture here is that he's got it behind doors, poetic language, and then he opens the door to the sea, and the sea went like, we have a child, and then it becomes an undisciplined toddler. Can anybody relate to this? You unleash the, the baby, and <laughs> off it goes, and it goes out, and, and it potentially could do some damage, right? But God places boundaries. We all know the importance of boundaries. We've learned, we've read books on boundaries. We know our children need boundaries. We know that we need boundaries. And God said to the sea, all right, that's as far as you can go. And I was reading an author who said that he was in a place where uh, the ocean, the waves were hitting against rocks and the spray was going up from the waves. And he was saying that it was the sea's futile attempt, vain attempt, to move beyond God's borders. <laughs> I want to get out of here! <laughs> right? Now, you say, but sometimes the sea goes beyond its boundaries, right? There's been tsunamis, and there's been rare occurrences when that does happen. But even then, it can only go so far. You see, the, the fact that God put boundaries on the sea is why you and I are alive. Because we live on the land. And so God made a place for the sea. He put boundaries around it. And he said, stop, you can only go this far. It went bursting forth. And if I can put it this way, Yahweh drew a line in the sand. And since the sea is a picture of evil, the Lord is saying, evil has a limit. I will draw the boundary. It cannot pass. And if you're thinking with me, Bible students, you know exactly that that's what Job needs to hear. Because Job has felt so out of control and so pummeled and so beat up, he's wondering how many waves can God allow to hit me? And then the next logical question is if I get hit with one more, is he actually in control? And in the Jewish mind, the sea represented chaos and darkness and evil and to the pagan mind as well, even sea monsters and the like. And so God is saying to Job through the questions, just as I control and shut in the sea that seems so powerful and so uncontrollable, I am controlling your situation too. Where there appears to be disorder, as ironic as it is, there is still, it is still ultimately under God's order. Now, I don't understand it all, folks. And I don't have all the answers. But here's the message to Job. Job, I've got you. Jesus commanded the wind and the waves in the New Testament to hush and be still, and he constantly challenged the faith of his followers. Let's look at verse 12. 
He moves from the sea to the dawn. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you been able to make that command to the morning, cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. On the first day of creation, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God is the one who commanded the morning. In the ancient mind, they thought that before we knew about all the processes, that each morning God commanded the new morning. And who's to say that God doesn't do that anyway, since he holds the universe together. But God commands the morning, as if to say, it's time to wake up! <laughs> he can wake up the dawn. Anybody know a girl named Dawn? Dawn, wake up! So you can wake up the rest of the world! Just five more minutes. Five more minutes. <laughs> That alarm on the phone, somebody has to change that. That is the most annoying sound, isn't it? Especially when someone else's phone is going off in another room and they're not shutting it off. <laughs> this is where I would like to be able to command the morning. Interestingly enough, in uh, Revelation 21, there's two things that we see in the new city, the new Jerusalem. There's no longer any sea, Revelation 21.1, and Revelation 21.25 says there's no longer any night. The sea represents chaos. Now, whether that's literally there's no more sea, I'll let you chew on that one. But no more sea and no more night they pass off the stage in the new heaven and earth. And Job has been struggling with both these concepts. He, he sees darkness all around him. It seems to have enveloped his whole life. He sees the wicked prospering. He, sent, he spent a couple of pa uh, chapters that we studied earlier saying, why do the wicked seem to get away with everything? Why doesn't the light just expose them and shine on them? Well, one day it will. He moves now from the dawn to the deep recesses of the world. We'll just do a few more little sections here. He says to Job, Have you, 16, entered into the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Now the question behind this may still be, is there some hidden power lurking somewhere that God doesn't really have control over? God's been addressing these, these various aspects of creation, but maybe Job deep down is saying, but is there some lurking for somewhere? Maybe behind some gates called death, maybe in some deep recesses of the ocean. You know, the deepest part, parts of the ocean go down seven miles. Seven miles. I was just reading that a sub can, I think, only go like four or five hundred feet down. Now they have those uh, ocean depth, uh, ocean floor uh, research subs that they have. 
But there's only a certain amount that you can go down. I think a human diver I read recently, breaking a Guinness Book of World Records record, went down 1,000 feet. 41-year-old man who did it to break a record. Can you imagine scoping out the bottom of the sea seven miles down, taking a walk around, walking your dog or your fish? (laughs) Wow, wow, wow. How long would it take to walk around on the bottom of the ocean? the ocean floor. And Job says to, God says to Job, ever been there before? Oh, you spent a lot of time talking about death. In fact, in the first few chapters, after Job decides he wants to worship, but it gets ugly, Job starts saying, I wish I wish I was never conceived. I wish I was never born. I wish I just went from the womb to the tomb. I wish I just went into the shadow lands, man. I wish it was over. At least the wicked find rest there, Job said earlier. Do they? You know the guys who uh, killed those students in Colorado? Was it uh, Dylan Klebold or something like that? Anyway, uh, right before he perished, he said, I'm going to a better place. Was he? See, the gates of death It's an interesting concept because Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades, Revelation 1.18. If you want to ask somebody about death and coming back from the dead, you might want to read about Jesus' life and how he predicted his own death, predicted his own death and his own resurrection. Jesus conquered death. He tasted death for each one of us. Hebrews 2.14, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Verse 18 may be speaking of the underworld. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Maybe Job's thinking something like this. Well, maybe God's in control of most things, but not the grim reaper. Maybe he's not really in control when someone dies. And he could be reflecting back on his children and all that happened. Where is the way 19 to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where where is its place, again, poetic? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. If you can put it this way, where does light live? Do you know? Do you know where darkness lives? Could you walk them home, Job? You know, for you were born then, right? 21. (laughs) And the number of your days is great. Enlighten me, Job. I'm sure you can tell me. I'm sure you've been around for a long, long time. Now, some divine sarcasm. Can you appreciate that? I can. Final section. We'll go up to 24. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Snow and hail, by the way, were used in battle and judgment. God used hail in Joshua 10, 11, and Exodus 9 in one of the plagues. Snow, too, is a weapon, says one writer, uh, with God in Psalm 68, 14. As both Napoleon and Hitler discovered in the snowy depths of Russia, when both of their armies suffered heavy losses because of the bitter cold than because of enemy action, close quote. Which I have reserved for the time of distress, 23, for the day of war and battle, notice. Where is the way that light is divided or the east wind on the earth? Now notice the uh, 
connection of hail and snow to the storm. It was a storm that knocked down the house where Job's kids were. So Job may be saying, well, Lord, are you in the storm? Are you in the snow? Maybe these were questions either spoken, implied, or at least thought of by Job. Is God really in control? And you may be thinking that tonight. You may have walked in here. We all have our moments. We all have our questions where we start wondering. People on the streets are wondering. Is God sovereign over it all? Chris Tomlin writes, From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creations revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All-powerful, untamable, Awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. And I think that if you can look a little bit beneath the questions that God is asking, because some people read the book of Job as skeptics and they go, oh, that's a lot of good that God did for Job. Asked him 77 questions. Where were you? Where were you, boy? Tighten your belt, boy. Time to wrestle. Time to tussle. Where were you when I bought this house and signed the 3,800 pieces of paper for this mortgage? (laughs) Where were you when I got on my knees and consecrated this house to the Lord? Where were you? And we can go on. And we can go back in our history and we say, well, I was here then and I was... But God says, Job, you might want to quiet. Let me instruct you for a little while. Amen? Oh, how we need it. (laughs) Father, thank you for this section of the book of Job. We are so grateful for it. It is powerful, humbling, eye-opening. Ultimately, I believe you did this to get us thinking about who we are and who you are. And what is amazing to me as we close this time together is that this God this creator and sustainer of the earth became Emmanuel, God, with us. And he came down and you were born in a miraculous way, Lord Jesus. And you lived and you died and you rose and you're at the right hand of the Father and you so love your people that you keep fighting for them every day. You died on the cross for us, you defeated death for us, and you still intercede for us. And it is so amazing. Your love, your goodness is really indescribable. Oh God, forgive us for the times that we have such little faith and sometimes we challenge you and often we don't even know half of what we're talking about, but Lord, you're so patient and good with us, and I pray that one of the lessons we can take away from this is that you'd help us to be patient and benevolent to others as they struggle with their own walk in life. And when we struggle, thank you for the grace that you give 
You are a holy, indescribable, wonderful, loving God, and we are so grateful. May you bless each person that's come here tonight. May you meet their deepest needs. May you speak to their situation, and may you cheer their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.